The following podcast is produced or sponsored by a community member. The content, views, and opinions expressed are those of the participants and do not reflect those of BMC or the town of Belmont. BMC welcomes your comments. Call us at 617-484-2443 or email us at access at belmontmedia.org. Hello again and welcome to another edition of the TOST Toddcast here on the Belmont Media Podcast Network found online at belmontmedia.org slash podcasts and also on soundcloud.com by searching Belmont Media. You can listen to the Toddcast at your convenience by downloading the free SoundCloud app available on both iTunes and Google Play stores. I'm Todd Bloniars from the award-winning Time Out for Sports Talk TV show available on BMC channels 9 and 29 and also on demand at belmontmedia.org. Well, <clears throat> and of course... Uh, just as I return to the uh, the podcast scene here, uh, we've uh, been developing a little bit of uh, tickle in my throat. That's probably uh, the seasonal allergies as everything is in bloom. Welcome to spring. And, of course, spring uh, can mean several things on the uh, Boston sports scene. But what it's going to be meaning later this week, of course, is the NFL draft and the Patriots' place in it. And, of course, uh, for that reason, we are very glad to be joined once again by Evan Lazar, who's the uh, Patriots beat reporter for CLNS Media, which you can find online at clnsmedia.com and also on Twitter at CLNS Media. Uh, Evan, also the co-host of the Patriots All-22 podcast, and uh, you can uh, follow Evan on Twitter, which I would recommend you do if you are interested in NFL draft uh, coverage, especially for the Patriots. Uh, Evan's Twitter handle is at EZLazar. That's E-Z-L-A-Z-A-R. I hope you can understand that with my uh, my allergy voice here kicking in just in the nick of time. But uh, let's get Evan uh, in here, Elv. Evan, welcome uh, to the TOST Toddcast. Thanks, Todd. I always love doing the show with you. Well, thank you. Whoops. Uh, had a little bit of a pop there. Hopefully we got that fixed. But uh uh, yeah, no, we're no. This is uh, I've been looking at some of your draft coverage, and you are uh, very comprehensive uh, in it. Uh, you're 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 definitely you are a, a draft nick. I mean, you're you're digging up names I never would have uh, even thought of. So uh, I'm impressed with that. Before we get into the draft, though, I want to talk a little bit about the Patriots offseason. The last time you and I uh, spoke on this podcast, we were recapping uh, the Patriots' sixth Super Bowl. But of course, uh, the offseason and everything that uh, entailed in the offseason, obviously the uh, the big news being, probably the biggest news would be the retirement of Rob Gronkowski, and uh, that followed by some offseason moves, a couple dabbles in free agency. Uh, talk about, uh, Evan, your, your thoughts on Gronkowski's retirement and also uh, how the Patriots may have tried to address some of those needs uh, in, in free agency. Yeah, well, you know, it's some pretty big shoes to fill, you know, literally and figuratively with Gronk. You know, I think the biggest thing is, is just looking right now at where the Patriots stand, that pass catcher, whether you want to throw the tight ends or the wide receivers or even the running backs and kind of just throw them all into one pool of guys that catch passes from Tom Brady. It's certainly a little bit barren and not exactly what you want to see, you know, when the Patriots kick off the season against the Pittsburgh Steelers, you know, in, in the beginning of September in a few months. So luckily for the Patriots, though, you know, the season doesn't start tomorrow and we obviously have the draft uh, this weekend that can certainly open up a whole lot of avenues of player acquisition to kind of bring in some guys to catch some pass from Tom Brady. But I think the biggest thing with Grant that I hear, um, you know, a lot of people talk about is drafting a tight end that can block and can catch passes to kind of replace the things that Rob Gronkowski did with one player. And I think that that is 
not the right way to look at it at all because you can't replace Rob Gronkowski with one player. You know, this is going to have to be a team effort. And also, you know, I just think that the offense morphed itself around Gronk's strengths because he was the best player in the offense, other than Brady, obviously, the best pass catcher in the offense. But that doesn't mean that the offense always needs to operate through the tight end like it did with Gronk here. You know, maybe now the offense kind of focuses or shifts itself more towards the backs or shifts itself more towards Julian Edelman or a guy that they draft or a guy that they trade for. Whatever the case may be, you don't need to have kind of the pivot man or the vocal point of the entire offense always be the tight end so you know I think that that's another element of it too is that the Patriots are so good at morphing and kind of creating a new scheme or a new kind of approach based off of their personnel and they were even starting to do that just like a little bit slightly last year when Gronk you know wasn't playing at a high level or his typical level I should say up to his standards and they were like kind of morphing the offense more towards the guys in the backfield like James White and Sony Michelle. Well, essentially, uh, Evan, I think what you're saying is that the Patriots offense needs to revert back to what it was in the the first incarnation of the Belichick-Brady dynasty from uh, 2001 up through 2009, where it was pre-Gronk, and yeah, you had some talented receivers, and you had some, some decent tight ends, but nobody who was the complete package that Rob Gronkowski was, certainly, with the ability to block so effectively and uh, pass catch. Uh, to that end, uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the free agent moves up. Obviously, the Patriots didn't make any major splashes in free agency, but they did pick up a couple of at least names that you might recognize if you have played fantasy football or followed the NFL the last you know few years. Uh, as far as a, a potential Gronkowski replacement or someone who could be part of maybe the tight end committee, if we'll call it that. Austin Safarian Jenkins uh, was a. Uh, they signed him to a one-year deal. Uh, some some quick thoughts. Uh, what you think uh, he can contribute to the Patriots? Well, yeah, he had a rough year, I would say, in 2018 with the Jags. He obviously had an injury that really ended it abruptly and quickly. You know, I think he played in four or five games. And, you know, the tape for him in 2018 wasn't that great. He wasn't exactly getting off the line of skimmers well. Uh, from indications down in Jacksonville, that groin injury that ended his season was kind of a prolonged thing from training camp. That was kind of a problem for him for even the games that he was playing in. So his explosiveness and stuff like that wasn't exactly there. Now, if you look, turn on the tape for the 2017, season that was a little bit better, a little bit more promising, and I think the biggest thing with ASJ is he's developed quite a bit as a blocker to the point now where he's an adequate to above average NFL tight end in line blocker. He's certainly not a blocking tight end by any stretch of the imagination, but he is a nice receiving option, I think, for the Patriots as like a tight end, too. I would say that his ceiling is someplace, or, or, you know, uh, this might be a little bit of high praise, but someplace around like what Martellus Bennett did for them a few years ago, where he comes in and he's just another, you know, just another guy that you have to cover, another massive feed, so to speak, and someone that can be a little bit of a weapon going up in the red zone and catching um, passes, you know, above his frame and kind of snatching some of those jump ball type throws. And it's, he shows some decent route detail, I would say, too, in terms of what he does at the top of his routes in the middle of the field. Um, he knows kind of how to attack leverages. He understands how to, you know, step on defensive back's toes and break off routes left to right. He beat Devin McCourty a, a 
a couple of times in the game that the Patriots played down in Jacksonville earlier this season on some nice routes over the middle. So, you know, there's some things to like. He's certainly the best tight end that they've brought in in the offseason. You know, he's much better than a Matt Lacoste, for example. Um, but I think the interesting thing will be whether he can stay on the field and stay healthy. Sure. And, of course, another uh, quasi-big signing for the Patriots in the last uh, couple of weeks was uh, Demarius Thomas, who I was reading on in one of your columns, Evan. You seem to be a little bit higher on than I am. I mean, my reaction when I heard the Patriots signed Demarius Thomas to a one-year deal was kind of more of a yawn and a shrug because I'm remembering the last couple of years he's had trouble staying healthy, plus his stats have kind of dropped off uh, where, you know, this is a guy who was a you know perennial 1,000-yard receiver. Now he's coming off of a, a torn Achilles, so I, I really question what – he has left, but you seem to be high on him maybe because he can sort of reinvent himself uh, uh, this year with the Patriots? Yeah, well, I think that, you listen, I try to I always look for some positives in some of these guys because the point of the matter is, is that Bill Belichick is bringing them in because he sees some positives, right? You know, you're not going to sign guys that they think are going to be horrible so or they think that have nothing left or whatever, you know, you want to use. So I look at it try to watch this film on a lot of these guys to kind of pick out and see what is it that the Patriots saw and Demarius Thomas that wanted to emphasize Demarius Thomas. I think the biggest thing is is that at this stage of his career, he's not the explosive weapon that he once was, where early on in his career, and certainly in his heyday from, you know, like 2012 to 2016, where I think he had five straight 1,000-yard seasons for the Broncos, he was an explosive, explosive playmaker with the ball in his hands, and he's a very big dude and very strong guy in the open field as well to add to that speed. I remember him being one of the most productive receivers in the league on wide receiver screens. Like, he would throw the ball out there on a screen pass, and Marius would take it 80 yards to the house. You know, that he was that kind of guy. He's not that kind of guy anymore. But with that said, I think that the route detail and some of the IQ stuff that I saw on tape last year – He's kind of matured as a receiver. He's kind of turned into kind of like a savvy veteran, more so than that explosive athlete that he once was. And I also think I'm optimistic in terms of his ability to pick up the offense if he can get on the field and get healthy because I'm sure, you know, that Josh McDaniels vouched for him in that respect. You know, obviously McDaniels draft pick, a guy that McDaniels worked with in Denver, you got to think that McDaniels knows that his football IQ and his football intelligence is at least borderline enough to be able to pick up the Patriots' complex offense. So I think that's kind of where he start with Demarius. Obviously, getting on the field is going to be huge for him, whether he's going to be able to stay healthy or not. And, you know, number two is how much does he have left in the day? People that, you know, kind of – compare him to like Reggie Wayne or Eric Decker or Joey Galloway or whatever veteran receiver fail that you want to bring up. I get it. I understand where you're coming from with that, and there's a very good chance that Demarius Thomas could be that all over again. I would say it's probably 50-50, you know, whether he is an impact or you know, a guy that has an impact on the 2019 season. And you provide the cur- uh, perfect counterbalance to my my 50% that says he's probably going to fall into the class of those other veteran receivers the Patriots have tried to bring in and gotten nothing uh, from. Again, we're joined here on the Toddcast by Evan Lazar, who uh, is providing great coverage uh, as the Patriots beat writer on CLNS Media, and he's also uh, doing a ton of stuff on the NFL Draft. So again, you've got a couple of days left until the, until the three-day extravaganza starts. So if you uh, want to go somewhere uh, to check out uh, some draft coverage, you can follow Evan on Twitter. It's at E-Z-L-A-Z-A-R. 
uh, and uh, looking at your big board. And uh, again, Evan, you, you got a lot going here. Uh, you did a top 50 of uh, of players. and uh, But I guess let's start with the tight end, the wide receiver uh, position, since we were just talking about uh, free agents that the Patriots signed in the, in the last few weeks. Uh, these also could be areas that the team might try to address uh, in the draft. Well, okay, maybe from a general sense. Let me start with you, this question for you, Evan. Do you think the Patriots, first of all, they have 12 draft picks, which is the most they've had in a while, uh, including uh, quite a few in the first few, uh, the, the early part of the draft. My question to you is, do you think uh, Belichick may change course a little bit here? I mean, in the past, I think he's always probably tried to take the best player available, but you're you're looking at that Tom Brady window for a soon-to-be 42-year-old quarterback. It keeps getting a little smaller. Uh, is there a chance that Belichick may try to use some of these early picks to, uh, you know, again, uh, address some needs like wide receiver and tight end and defensive line? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's always a chance for anything, but I think that you know, the neatest thing is Belichick loves to say, he loves to say, well, we don't draft for need. You know, that's stupid. I think the thing is that, you know, well, if you look at last year's draft for them, they can say all they wanted, they didn't draft for need, but they picked, you know, they lost Nate Solder in free agency, so they picked a left tackle. They lost Deion Lewis in free agency, so they picked a running back, and they lost Malcolm Butler in free agency, so they picked a corner. So you can kind of say that they don't turn out for need, but their big, 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 you know, off-season losses last year, they replaced their uh, drafted guys at those positions. So whether you want to call that drafting for need or not, I like to kind of talk about it in terms of best grade available. Um, so I think that the Patriots and a lot of teams kind of put a lot of names on the board at certain positions where they say we want to hit a player at each one of these positions in this draft, and they kind of have a game plan as to when exactly they would like to do that or like to assess that, and they go from there. So, you know, they knew, let's say, this far to say that they wanted to take a running back at some point in last year's draft, and when they came up at 30, Joe was best player on their board, and they drafted him. But if it was a player on the board with, let's say, a quarterback or something like that, I don't know if they would have drafted that quarterback, if that makes sense. So I think that there's sort of a kind of divided kind of semantics, if you will, of what exactly Belichick means when he says best player available. In terms of the wide receivers and the tight ends and uh, what Belichick is going to do early in this draft, I still think and stand by the fact that this draft is a typical in-the-trenches, old-school football-type draft at the top. It is very, very good in the first round at both defensive and offensive line, and usually I would say that Belichick kind of loves that. You know, he loves that element of it when he can get some big guys that can move early in the draft and fill some holes on his in his trenches in the defensive front, which really, if you look back at the Super Bowl last year and the playoff run, was kind of how, you know, on top of Tom Brady and Julian Edelman and Gronk, obviously, is kind of how they won the thing. Well, when you win a Super Bowl 13-3, to it's pretty apparent that you're doing it at the line of scrimmage. That's uh, the key to your success, no question about that. Uh, Evan, looking at your two uh, mock drafts that you've run so far, uh, let's start with that first-round pick that the Patriots have at number 32 uh, again for the sixth time in the last uh, 18 years. Uh, both In both instances of, of your two mock drafts, you have the Patriots going defensive line with that number 32 overall pick. Uh, you, your uh, your most recent uh mock draft, you have uh, them taking Dexter Lawrence out of uh, Clemson. You, you, you think they're definitely going, like you said, defensive line with this number 32 pick uh, regardless, or do you think there's a chance they could take this package it with some of their, their lower picks and maybe try to move up a little bit? 
Well, I definitely think that defensive line is probably the best bet in terms of where they'll go with that pick. It's where I would go with that pick. And I do like the idea, I wrote a column a few weeks ago about how, listen, they have all these picks, got 12 picks, they don't necessarily have enough roster spots to fit a full 12-man draft class. Then you got the undrafted rookies, you got any veteran trades that they might pull off in the meantime or veteran signings. It's a lot of you know, bodies and not a ton of roster spots when you really start to do the math. So I would love to see them try to get aggressive and maybe move up. If it's, I'm not talking about moving up to the top ten or anything like that, but if they really like one of these Clemson guys, whether it's Dexter Lawrence or Clellan Farrell, or they really like Jerry Tillery out of Notre Dame, another guy that I really like, or even one of the offensive linemen that, you know, has kind of uh, skyrocketed up the boards, one of the tackles, or even Chris Lindstrom out of BC who might be a first-round pick, go get him. You know, like there's really no reason to, you know, sit on all of these picks in my estimation. Go get those guys. Trade maybe, you know, your, your 101, uh, the, the last third-round pick that you have. You have 97 and 101. Do you really need both? Uh, do you really need 136 in the fourth round? You know, there's some picks that the Patriots have that I think are expendable. Well, you brought up O-line, uh, and we talk about you know some of the departures that left in free agency. Uh, big Trent Brown, uh, who was such a key part of uh, the sixth championship for the Patriots, uh, you, you know, at the left tackle, uh, protecting Brady's blindside. Are is Belichick? Uh, are the Patriots confident that Isaiah Wynn can just step right into that left tackle spot, or do you think there? You know, as you say, there's maybe a possibility that with that number thirty-two overall pick, Bill decides to go O-line there and, and specifically left tackle. Yeah, I think there's a very good possibility that they take a tackle at thirty-two, or maybe in the first you know pick of that second round at 56 or maybe even they try to trade up into the second round to get one of these tackles because really i think the tackle position is very very good in this draft at the top but there is a little bit of a cliff there after some i would say about six or seven guys come off the board so once you hit that cliff i mean you're talking about some good you know chance to be starters or role players or third swing tackle type guys but you're not talking about a guy that's a plug and play player but they have a chance to have the with the capital they have to get a plug and play player listen i think that they have confidence in isaiah win but at the same time no one knows a when he's going to be back fully and b how he's going to respond to that achilles injury you just even if they love the guy and love the tape last year like everyone did like i did you can't have 100% certainty that a guy of that size is going to come back from an Achilles injury in year one and start on top of his blindside for 16-plus games. It's just a lot to ask. So with that you know, in mind, and also in mind that Marcus Cannon's getting up there in age, he's on the last year of his deal. They could use a third tackle in general just for next year, even if you're penciling it or you know, Isaiah Wynn and Cannon as your starter. Adrian Waddle as well, so they don't have a backup or a third tackle or a swing tackle um, to play both sides in the pinch, you know, to spot start or come in mid-game if there's an injury. So tackle is a big need, I think, for the Patriots, and it's a good draft to have that need. I just think that they're going to have to go early with it unless they really like one of these guys in the kind of the third round or late second round maybe. Um, but I, I think the early guys like a Dalton Reisner um, is a very, very good pick at 32 if they want to go that route. 
Interesting. Well, they've always, uh, you know, they've had success uh, going uh, either offensive or defensive line uh, with those first round picks. I mean, players certainly, uh, you know, like a Nate Solder or, uh, you know, a Vince Wilfork, you know, just kind of looking at both sides of, of the line and what and uh, Richard Seymour for, you know, you want to go all the way back. Uh, so, again, this is uh, Evan Lazar uh, from a CLNS Media Patriots beat writer uh, and also NFL draft extraordinaire here. Uh, I got to ask this question, Evan, uh, for, uh, for a good friend of mine who actually called into one of our uh, TV shows. He actually called in when we were previewing Super Bowl 53 with a draft question. Like he already foresaw that Gronk was going to retire and he, he listed off these tight ends, which I had never heard of. But thanks to him, I got I heard the names for the first time. And then thanks to your stories, uh, you know, certainly I, I've got even more information on these guys. There, there seem to be three big tight ends that are projected to go anywhere, maybe within the first three rounds. Maybe they're all going to go in the first round. There's the two guys from Iowa, uh, TJ Hawkinson uh, and uh, Noah Font. And then, uh, you know, which were the two names that my friend brought up. He says, these two Iowa tight ends, what do you think? And, you know, because I didn't know who they were. But now that I've looked at all these different guys, I mean, I think that, you know, as talented as both those guys are, I don't know if Bill's looking at them as much as he is Irv Smith from Alabama, because obviously uh, Bill was down at uh, one of uh, the uh, Saban's uh, practices uh, during uh, the offseason. So uh, talk about these three guys, and do you think there's a chance Belichick may uh, use a pick or maybe even move, make a trade to move up to get one of them? And where do you think they might land or, or where they're projected to go? Yeah, certainly. I mean, listen, the Patriots have picked Daniel Graham. They've picked Ben Watson. they picked Kronk at I think 42 it was. They've picked tight ends high in the draft. You know, there's no disputing that. So they, they have no hesitation. You, know, you can maybe talk about, like, wide receiver in terms of position that they haven't ever gone in the first round with. They've yeah, we'll get to that. In the first round. They've gone tight end in the top 50. Uh, it certainly wouldn't be unprecedented for them to do it again. Now, TJ Hawkinson is my favorite player in the entire draft and is the best tight end I've scouted over the last three years. He is an absolute stud. He does everything well. He blocks well. He is a great pass catcher. He has been compared uh, by, I think it was Daniel Jeremiah on NFL Network, to Jason Witten, which I think is a great comparison. Um, Maybe a little bit less kind of thick than as Witten, and maybe a little bit more athletic and a little bit more flexible in his routes. But he is certainly a do-it-all monster. He is going to be off. I'd be floored if he's not off the board in, by, like, the 11th pick or something like that. Uh, he's, I think, a top-10 talent in this class, certainly a top-10 pick in this class in my eyes, and I wouldn't be surprised at all if one of those teams at the end of the top-10, maybe Buffalo, um, jumps at him because he is that good. Now, his teammate Noah Font is a very interesting one. He absolutely killed the combine and kind of overshadowed Hawkinson, at least for that day, um, at the combine, although Hawkinson had a really good workout too is just Noah Font tested in the 99th percentile and kind of blew everybody out of the water. Basically won every single drill that you do at the combine right down the line from the jumps to the 40 to the three cone to everything. He's a freak athlete. He's a better blocker than I think he gets credit for at times, but it's not a strength of his game quite yet, but he's a bigger guy. There's obviously tons of explosiveness and athleticism, so if you get hands on him, you could probably develop into a decent inline blocker um, in a couple of years or maybe even right away if you can kind of play your cards right. He's the type of guy, though, 
that is certainly kind of going to move around the formation a little bit more um, and, and maybe play a little bit more flanked out wide as like almost a big wide receiver versus a guy that's going to take a ton of reps in line early on in his career. But he is a mismatch the second that he steps off the bus. I mean, there's not a whole lot of teams, even in the NFL, that are going to have big enough strong enough, fast enough guys to keep up with him in a one-on-one, you know, kind of man coverage type situation. So he's a beast. The only thing with Font that I think that, you know, is a little bit um, worrisome is obviously, you know, he's not as dominant of a blocker as Hawkinson, but I'd actually be more concerned with his ball skills. He does have a ton of drops on his tape, and the way that he goes about attacking the football in the air, um, especially in terms of not not necessarily the jump balls, he's a pretty good jump ball guy, but the drive throws, you know, the kind of the, the shorter and intermediate routes is not exactly great, and he's got some bad drops on his tape that I think could kind of push him down a little bit into the 20s, but guys with his kind of, you know, they call it the triangle in the scouting community, size, weight, athletic ability, uh, don't usually fall too far in the NFL draft. So I wouldn't be surprised if both of those guys go um, in the top 20 picks. Now, in terms of trading up to get Noah Font, I like it um, if the Patriots can trade up to, like, let's say, 24 with Oakland or um, maybe even 21 with Seattle, but I think we're starting to kind of talk a little bit too much draft capital for a tight end that is probably going to be early on in his career. Something like, and you know, maybe in terms of if his usage is better, it could be better than this, but like a David Njaku in Cleveland or an OJ Howard in Tampa Bay. Very good starting tight end caliber players, but their production, as like a lot of tight ends in their first couple of years in the league, hasn't been off the charts. So I think that it's a little bit aggressive to go up and trade for Noah Font. If TJ Hawkinson somehow starts to slip, I mean, you've got to make some calls. Like, that's a pick that if he starts to slip into the teens, you know, you got to start thinking about that one because he's, you know, as close as thing to Rob Gronkowski as you're going to get in the draft for a tight end. Now, Irv Smith is a really interesting one, too. So the thing about Irv is that he – from a president's standpoint and historical standpoint, it would be pretty unprecedented to take a tight end that's only six foot two, uh, 250-ish pounds. Uh, I think he's actually a little bit less than that in the first round. His athletic profile in terms of his size, weight, and also athletic testing at the combine is not that of a first-round tight end. With that said, at 32 we're not really talking about necessarily like a lock first round pick at that point where we're more talking about guys that teams mostly have second round grades on usually only have about 20 um, max 25 first round grades if the class is really good so at 32 you're probably talking about a high second round pick anyways so you're starting to talk about Irv Smith at that point as well he's another tight end that can do it all. Um, he doesn't. He does everything good. He just doesn't do anything great. I would say, which is kind of you know not not a knock on him necessarily, but when you don't have that one elite trait, it kind of gets a little bit scary um, for a tight end. The one tight end though that I that I like, you know, not um, in that conversation at 32 necessarily, but at the end of the second round is Jay Sternberger from A and M who, as a receiver, was one of the better receivers at the position in college football last year, and he just fits the receiving kind of route tree that the Patriots ask of their tight ends absolutely perfectly. Uh, He's a field stretcher, a seam stretcher, a guy that's going to run up the seam against zone coverage, 
get open against man coverage. He is just, a lot of people have said this, but he's just always open um, constantly in the passing game. But he doesn't have the inline blocking skills yet that he would want in, in an early round pick at tight end. So I think Herb Smith and Jay Sternberger are the guys that are the most realistic options if they're going to go tight end early. But again, if one of those Iowa guys starts to slip, then you know maybe they make a call. Yeah, and in your uh, latest mock draft, Evan, you have uh, the Patriots taking a Sternberger with the uh, 64th overall pick, their second pick in the second round. Uh, by the way, again, for my friend Dave who's listening, there you go. Uh, Jay Sternberger might be the name you want to start uh, memorizing now. Uh, yeah, he, he sounds like he could uh, be an interesting choice there uh, for sure. Uh, talk about receivers, Evan. You had mentioned that the Patriots, uh, their history has not been that great uh, when trying to draft wide receivers, uh, particularly uh, in the uh, higher rounds, although I I guess the book says that if they're going to get a quality wide receiver, they probably ought to try to draft early. Uh, It feels feels kind of like mid-round wide receivers don't necessarily pan out the way they do at, say, other positions in uh, in the draft. So talk a little bit about this. Is there any chance, uh, it feels like it'd be going totally against Belichick's thinking, but is there any chance, is there any receiver that you could see in the first, say, two rounds that Belichick would be willing to uh, position himself to try to get in this draft? Yeah, I think there's some good second-round value at receiver. Um, guys that Belichick would pull the trigger on. A.J. Brown out of Ole Miss. A lot of people have kind of talked about him at 32. Here's my kind of argument against taking a receiver at 32 in this draft, and that is there, this draft is loaded at receiver if you want, like, a number two or a number three guy. It doesn't have a Julio Jones. It doesn't have an A.J. Green, but it has a ton of guys that are going to be productive players in the league as kind of like, you know, uh, let's call him like Julian Edelman's obviously without the clutch Super Bowl performance and Super Bowl MVPs, but just in terms of Julian Edelman's kind of, he was always kind of like the one beat of Gronkowski, but they always had Gronkowski, right? So one of these guys is going to have to be paired with another stud receiver to kind of hit his ceiling, I think. I don't think that one of these guys is going to be that guy that's going to elevate the entire thing like Gronk did for the Patriots. But with that said, there's about 20 guys in that boat. So if you take a guy at 32 that you kind of think is about in the same ballpark as a guy that you could pick maybe in the second or the third round, you're not getting great value with that pick. Whereas if you take a stud defensive lineman or a stud offensive tackle in this class, you're getting a lot more value out of that player than the player that you might get at 56 or 64. So I think that it's a whole, it's a value thing um, more so than anything else. There's a huge variance talking to the people in the league, talking to other um, media. There's a huge variance of where everybody has this receiver class ranked. Like who is the number one receiver? I've had it as DK Metcalf from Ole Miss since February. A lot of people after the combine, because of some of his agility testing, have soured on DK Metcalf. There, you, someone could literally have a guy ranked at number two in this receiver class, and someone else could have him outside their top ten. That's how much variance there is in this class, and that tells me that there's great depth. So to invest a high pick in it at 32, for example, I think is a little bit, you know, it's not the best value that you could get out of that pick when a guy in the third round is probably in the same range or the same cluster as the guy in the first round. So I think A.J. Brown would be a nice pick in the, in the second round. Certainly they'd probably have to move up to get him. 
Debo Samuel at South Carolina is a great fit in the New England system. Guy that's built like a running back, plays receiver, very good after the catch, very good on underneath stuff, has enough speed to get over the top. Really love his fit. Riley Rildy from Georgia, another guy that didn't test very well in Indianapolis, but has a very, very good route savvy and, and very good route runner, one of the best in this class in that respect as well. And the last one I'll throw Harden from Georgia, another Riley Ridley's teammate, actually, who is a four-down player. He's going to come and return kicks and punts for you pretty early on in his career, even right away. And then he also can play in the slot, and he's got some, like, gadget play-type value to him, too, where he can be used on reverses and screen passes and stuff like that. He ran in the four threes. He's an absolute lightning so those kind of guys I think are you know where you start with it for New England and uh, Marquise Brown from Oklahoma is a nice pick but he's undersized and has a lot of injuries and durability concerns so I, I'm not as high on him in terms of that I, I'm very high on his tape not as high on him for the pass for that reason all right so to sum up on the receivers no AJ Green but there is an AJ Brown how about <laughs> we'll leave it at that? The... I mean, and that's okay. Like, you know, listen, like a high end number two or maybe a low end number one, when you have like three or four guys that you can throw passes to in an offense that's not centered or centered around just one guy, that's kind of the Patriots' motto, right? Like, that's kind sure. of their MO is we're going to have a bunch of different guys that you're going to have to cover instead of one. Yeah, no, there's no question about that. And and certainly, like you're saying, if this is going to be a deeper draft for receivers, then there's there's really no doubt that Belichick will wait on that position as far as uh, uh, this year's I'll draft. I'll probably do the opposite but, just because I said that. Right, yeah, I know. He I know whenever we logically try to think what Belichick's going to do, you're right. He, he zigs when we expect him to zag. Let's wrap up uh, our, our draft talk, Evan, with the final question, probably the burning question, because the Patriots do have a quarterback who's about to turn 42 years old. Yes, he may be the greatest of of all time, but he's not getting any younger. Uh, and Danny Etling, who they took in the seventh round last year, may not necessarily be the heir apparent. Brian Hoyer certainly is not the heir apparent. Uh, I'm going to throw four names out at you that I saw from reading some of your stuff and other folks. Uh, I, I feel like one of these four guys the Patriots ought to target, so I'm going to mention the names, and then you tell me where you think they could be, and, and is Belichick interested in any of them? Uh, the big four probably. Will Greer, who I think you've, you've talked a bit about from West Virginia. Daniel Jones from Duke. Ryan Finley from North Carolina State and uh, Mark Rippon's nephew, Brett Rippon. I had no idea that Mark Rippon had a nephew who was uh, considered a high draft pick uh, from Boise State. I remember they've always had a fun-loving gadget-geared offense. So uh, uh, what about those four guys and uh, what do you see in them and could Belichick be interested in any of them? Yeah, I'll also throw out Jared Stidham from Auburn in there, who's kind of picked up some light steam. He's a guy that I really had written off after a bad 2018, but the NFL seems a little bit higher on him. I mean, I think the best way to do this is to rank them in kind of clusters. I think the first cluster, the you know kind of early round cluster, I'll call it, is between Will Greer and Ryan Finley, both very accurate downfield passers, both uh, smart guys that have kind of the face of the franchise makeup to them. I like Greer a little bit more than I like Finley. The main reason is that Greer tests, uh, trusts his arm and is willing to kind of push the ball down the field into tight windows, where there's, I think, some proof on tape um, with Ryan Finley that he doesn't have trust his arm strength as much as Greer and is a little bit gun-shy, which in the NFL can really... Um, 
you know, burn you. But I think that he's got a high ceiling or high floor, excuse me, Ryan Finley. And I guess what the NFL likes about him a lot is that he's the type of guy that, you know, might not be the Hall of Fame starter that you're hoping for, but he might just be a guy that can kind of get the job done for you. I think Greer has a little bit more upside and a little bit more moxie um, with his arm strength and with his, you know, trusting his, his talent overall, um, unlike Finley. Then the next tier, I think, you know, is really uh, Jared Stidham and Brett Ripon. And, uh, and I think that that, you know, is, is sort of in that, you know, fifth to fourth to fifth, maybe sixth round range, somewhere around there. The NFL is not anywhere near as high on Brett Ripon as me or a lot of kind of the draft nerds on Twitter. Well, hey, Evan, really quick, I don't mean to interrupt you there, but uh, he, his his uncle used to pronounce his last name as Rippon. Is there something I'm missing here? Or Oh, no, it, you're probably right. It's probably Rippon. Okay, sorry. I, I just I didn't know if maybe the nephew was uh, pronouncing his name differently or something because I the first time I've seen it in print. Good call. Yeah, no, Rippon, uh, he... The NFL community seems to be a lot lower on him than the draft media community. Uh, draft media has Rippon as a top, you know, fringe top five quarterback, somewhere fifth or sixth, something like that in the rankings. The NFL, I've seen kind of like a lot of these mock drafts that are like what we're hearing, not based off tape, but based off what they're hearing from scouts and GMs and stuff like that, that have Rippon all the way down in the seventh round. So there's a lot of variance in terms of, you know, kind of divide in terms of what the NFL thinks of him and what the media thinks of him. That has been a lot at Boise State. A lot of them played from under center. He ran play action from under center. He ran RPOs. He ran pistol. He ran shotgun. Did a whole lot of different kind of pro-style stuff that the Patriots would really like. His processing skills are really good. His downfield accuracy is decent. And the biggest thing with him is that he is willing to stand in the pocket under pressure and really deliver some pretty, pretty balls down the field with guys in his face in the pocket. It's always good to see from an NFL standpoint as well. Jared Stidham, again, like I said, is a guy that the NFL is trusting his 2017 tape on. His 2018 tape was a very much a disaster. He was a guy that was getting some first-round buzz uh, last year in 2017, and then in 2018 it kind of fell off the rails for him, and, and things really started to go downhill, and he kind of turned into more of like an early day three guy instead. But if you look at the 2017 tape, uh, nice to delivery, kind of a big, tall guy in the pocket, sees the field pretty well, makes you know most of the throws that he needs to make, but his accuracy is all over the place, and that's going to be a big concern, I think, for NFL teams, and you really can't teach accuracy. It's very difficult to fix that um, problem once you get to the NFL, because quite frankly, they just don't have the time that they once did to develop a lot of these guys, so you're either in and you're out really quickly in the NFL nowadays, so they don't have the practice time, they don't have the developmental lead. They don't have that kind of stuff to really let these guys work on their craft. So it gets kind of difficult to start to really developing big traits like accuracy. So that's where you kind of stand with Stidham. Daniel Jones, I think, is, you know, just to touch on him real quick, is one of the most fascinating evaluations, I would say, over the last couple of years out of the quarterbacks. He doesn't do anything, in my opinion, at a first-round level other than look the part, and yet he's probably going to be like a top 15, top 20 pick in this draft uh, based off of what everybody's saying and off of all the mock drafts and stuff like that that you read. So it's very interesting seeing with Andrew Jones. Listen, he's six foot four, 225, uh, white quarterback, pocket passer, 
very good in the quick passing game, can get the ball out, gets the ball out on time, understands what he's looking at most of the time. But his accuracy is spotty, um, and, and I really think that his decision-making is spotty too, and he doesn't have like immense arm talent. I think the biggest two comparisons that you hear, and I'll give you mine because I, I don't know if these ones necessarily hit the nail, but the two biggest ones that you hear with him are Alex Smith and Ryan Tannehill. I kind of look at him more as Nick Foles. Um, there's nothing wrong with being Nick Foles, but obviously that's not a franchise quarterback that you want to pick in the top ten. Well, there was nothing wrong with being Nick Foles in Super Bowl 52 for sure. Uh, uh, you actually, in your latest mock draft, uh, you took uh, you said the Patriots were going to take uh, Brett Rippon uh, with their only fourth round pick, which is 134th overall. You want to stick by that? I know. I know your your last mock draft was about two weeks ago. So do you you want to continue to stand by that and that the Patriots no. will uh, take a quarterback? there i love Rippin. i really think that he's would be a great pick and, and a potential guy that maybe isn't going to be the successor that everybody wants but the successor that they need uh he's not going to go in the fourth round it, it hurts me to say that that was definitely more at that time two weeks ago a pick of you know me based on what i was seeing on tape now when you start to really get into like what the scouts are saying, what the GMs are saying, how board is starting to shake out over across the league, he's really being talked about more in like the sixth or seventh round, which is mind blowing to me and to a lot of people that really have studied his tape closely. But it is what it is. Uh, my newest mock comes out on Wednesday, the day before the draft, and uh, I have another quarterback now penciled in a little bit earlier um, that has picked up a whole lot more Patriots buzz in the last 24 hours. Let me put you that way. I'm sorry. So who was that then? Who's it is Will Greer? Uh, oh, Greer. Okay. All right. Had Will Greer in the mock before that rumor started, um, and uh, and I had him a little bit later uh, in the third round with that 73rd selection. Mm -hmm. um, but now I'm probably going to end up moving him up a little bit more into the second round. Uh, you know, now that. I think the buzz is starting to build a little, enough to think that he's not going to go in the first round, I don't think so, but I could definitely see him going in the second round now. Okay, well, I'll say this about Brett Rippon. Um, first of all, if he could have a career anything like his Uncle Mark, that would be pretty darn good because uh, his uncle did win a Super Bowl for the Redskins and, and had uh, quite a few Pro Bowl years, I think, in there as well. And uh, he wasn't a guy who wowed anybody, but he just went out there and helped helped win games. He was a you know pretty effective quarterback in his era. Uh, also, for the record, if you're talking about Rippon slipping to, say, the sixth or seventh round, possibly, uh, there is a sixth round. The Patriots have one sixth round pick at 205. That is six spots lower than they took Tom Brady back in 2000. But yeah, I mean, just listen, saying. like, in terms of value, if they like, can lightning strike twice. <laughs> yeah, in terms of value, like, that's a great pick, right? I mean, if they if they really feel that Rippon is better than than you know where the consensus is on him, and they can get him in the sixth round, like that's that's tremendous. All right. Well, listen, uh, Evan, we appreciate uh, you taking the time joining us here on the podcast again. Uh, you're going to be uh, you're going to be tweeting and, and everything live during uh, the, the upcoming draft, and people can of course find you at at uh, Ez Lazar L A Z A R. So is that you're going to be doing like live coverage all night? 
Yeah, so I'll be uh, down at Gillette um, reporting from uh, the media workroom down there at Gillette uh, on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Uh, the Patriots usually send out either Belichick or Nick Casario after every pick to come talk to us about the pick, and we can ask them questions. And whether a trade happens, too, you can talk about that, too. So we'll have all of the wall wall coverage completely covered on uh, CLNSmedia.com and on our YouTube page, as well as just search CLNS Media on YouTube, and it will pop up. And I would definitely recommend you follow Evan because uh, he knows what he's talking about and he's done an awful lot of homework uh, uh, prepping. Uh, more homework than any of us have time to do. So uh, thank you, uh, Evan, for this uh, for this recap. I know there's a lot more we can get into, but uh, I figure we, we tackled some of the top needs and we'll we'll see, you know, as as it is with the Patriots every draft year, you, you never know what to expect. And they're probably, you know, like you said, they're probably going to do the unexpected yet again. Yep, absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, thank you, Evan, uh, for joining us here uh, again on the Toddcast. You can follow Evan at Easy Lazar. That's E-Z-L-A-Z-A-R. And again, uh, he uh, writes for CLNS Media, and you can go to that website as well. You can follow them on Twitter at CLNS Media. So again, uh, thanks, Evan. Uh, we'll talk soon. I uh, hope you're uh, you know looking forward to see how many of these picks you're going to be right on. All right. I guess I guess he left. Okay. <laughs> it was... <laughs> All right. Well, I thought he was still there, but uh, the line said he was still there, but apparently he's not. That's okay. Uh, hey, he had to run. Uh, he's he's a busy guy this week, and I, I can imagine. Uh, uh, once again, uh, we want to, uh, you know, don't forget, uh, you can follow uh, the Toddcast on social media. You can also follow Time Out for Sports Talk on social media. We have a Facebook page. We have a Twitter page. Uh, go to Facebook, search Time Out for Sports Talk. Go to Twitter. Our handle is at TOSTBMC. And uh, there you can get the links to the latest Toddcasts as, as well as our monthly uh, TV shows. Those stream live on belmontmedia.org. Uh, of course, if you follow us on social media in either of those places, you'll also know when our next live TV show is, which uh, I believe is going to be May 22nd or something well after the draft. So we'll have a chance to dissect and analyze all these picks and try to uh, predict what their careers are going to be. Howie McClellan and I always uh, with some fun uh, doing that. Uh, again, uh, it was uh, really good to kind of get into all this uh, uh, meat and potatoes with the draft and it should be a fun draft for the Patriots 12 picks the most they've had in a while but they probably aren't going to use them all package them up trade you know how Belichick just loves to trade in and out uh, of of one draft and sometimes he'll trade into the other draft in fact some of the picks the Patriots have here are, are picks that they've had in uh, they, they picked up from trades they made in last year's draft and uh, other trades that they made. For example, uh, Patriots have two second-round picks. The first one they have at number 56. They actually have this trade from uh, the Chicago Bears, but it's actually a pick that's been sort of moved around. Uh, If you remember when the Patriots made the trade, uh, when they traded Jimmy Garoppolo to the San Francisco 49ers, they did eventually get Trent Brown, but they also got uh, a a second-round pick last year, which they then turned around. Belichick turned that pick into multiple picks, and one of those picks will be... uh, Coming up on Friday night, April the 26th, the uh, second round pick, uh, 56th overall. That'll be a part of the uh, the residual from uh, that Jimmy Garoppolo trade. Which so there's st- so for those of you who want to evaluate that trade, you're gonna have to at least wait till Friday night uh, uh, in the draft to see uh, what the Patriots uh, do there. Of course, the Patriots also picked up four uh, compensatory picks uh, in this year's draft. 97 uh, in the third round, 97th overall. That's a compensatory pick for Nate Solder uh, leaving in free agency. Then just four. Picks after that in the third round, number 101 overall. That is a uh, compensatory pick for Malcolm Butler's departure. 
Uh, we mentioned the, uh, the the sixth round, 205th pick, which maybe uh, Patriots will take a flyer on uh, on Brett Rippin, Mark uh, Mark Rippin's nephew. Uh, that's a compensatory pick from the loss of Danny Amendola. And then finally, uh, their very last pick, which will be a 252 overall in the seventh round. Uh, they actually that that pick uh, is also being comped to them uh, f- uh, when Cameron Fleming signed in free agency. So four of their 12 picks. Uh, you know, come via the uh, compensation variety, and then there's, a, again, a whole lot of others, their original picks. Actually, of their 12 picks, only four of them are their original picks, and then four others that they acquired in trades, either from last year's draft or last year's trade deadline. It's a lot of fun, uh, certainly what is uh, what's going on uh, uh, so again, the draft uh, takes place over three days. We didn't. I didn't get a chance to ask Evan what he thought about the whole three-day thing. I'm, I'm still an old-school guy and don't mind. Uh, you know, kind of wish they still had the whole one Saturday afternoon. But I guess I get it. This is kind of the way, the way uh, things go now. It's more of a, a production, and that's what the NFL wants you to be. They want you to be thinking of their uh, league uh, 12 months a year. So again, uh, again, follow us on Facebook, Twitter. I uh, want to thank Evan Lazar once again from CLNS Media for uh, getting us uh, ready for the draft. And until next time, this is Todd Bloniars thanking you for checking out the TOSD Toddcast right here on the Belmont Media Podcast Network.